Hello, everyone, and welcome to this It's Thursday free episode of TF. It's the free one. Recorded before uh, Britain takes its well-deserved Easter break. It is Riley in studio with Hussein. What's up? Uh, and we are, of course, joined as ever by Alice in the frozen north of Glasgow. Hi, how's it going? It's a lovely day up here, actually, and I don't appreciate your insinuations about my, my adoptive country's climate. Yeah, uh, that, and then we are also joined uh, for, I think, the third or possibly fourth time uh, by Cory Doctorow. Cory, how's it going? Hello, happy Passover and uh, Ramadan Eid. Yeah, that is... That's, <laughs> that's, and, that's covered all the bases. Yeah, there's no <laughs> other major yeah. religious holiday coming up, <laughs> anything like that. That's it, that's as, all of them. As my uh-huh. dad used to say every Passover, roses are red, violets are bluish. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd all be Jewish. <laughs> so um, true. So so true. Are we are we bewaring the Ides of Ramadan? Uh. <laughs> TF also has now joined, if not the the Easter equivalent to the war on Christmas, which is the uh, targeted surgical strike on Easter. Mm. Uh, we, <laughs> the special, the special military operation against the Easter Bunny. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Easter Bunny is a noted uh, drug user Caught. and pervert. Compromised to a permanent end, the Easter Bunny. <laughs> uh, so we we've got a really good show for you here today. We've got a little bit of news. We're going to mm. be talking also about uh, one of the I think possibly under discussed advances of the inshitification of uh, the internet, which is the closure of the internet archive or the attempted closure of the internet archive by a number of publishers. Which is, of course, very terrible, and that's one of the reasons. In addition to him being a lovely guy, we like to talk to. We brought Corey on today. However, thank you. Before we go on to all of that, uh, I would also like to. Um, this was uh, sort of alerted, uh, so sent to me via Twitter. Uh, Shot Spotter, a company we've uh, talked about before, which, if you recall, it um, does not basically work. is no, it doesn't work. It's a kind of. Um, racialized panic inducement that sort of used well you yeah. know what it is it's gunshot dowsing because the idea is that you you would install one of these like very expensive towers and then it would tell you when like someone was letting it bark and in what direction and give you like a sort of you know a bearing and a distance and it just didn't work yeah well, well no, i course. think it's it's more properly understood as a pretense generation system for oh, when you so. absolutely positively want to go and make someone turn out their pockets and throw them on the ground and search their car hmm. well the stock price of shot spotter is down 22 percent on the election of brandon johnson in chicago to which i can only say it is adding to the long and storied history of uh guys called brandon causing getting elected and causing tech company valuations <laughs> to plummet uh, so let's go brandon <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. Uh, that's right. We're all going, Brandon. We've got Brandon Mania. What? What's he going to crash next? It's oh, a summer of Brandon. Say. That's right. I do have. I do have one piece of sad news, if I may, to interrupt with the news, which is that uh, our boy, um, our special boy, a hero and an inspiration to many of us here, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, not doing well. So prayers up for uh, you know the the, the Italian. Uh, Prime Minister who really like gave us permission to be weird and who gave us a lot of encouragement when we were starting out. 
Yeah, who it just it invented the most popular TV show on Italy, which is just like girls in bikinis called like you know tutti frutti or mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, did yeah. unspeakable crimes. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, just uh, very sad to see. So prayers up mm-hmm. for our boy. I think I speak for all of us when I say a very sad bunga bunga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although interestingly, I think that Berlusconi may be astral projecting to Scotland in the last couple of days. <laughs> yes, where- Scotland. The the SNP. Uh, and I, I, I'm stealing this joke, but the SNP want very badly for Scotland to be in the EU. And what's more in the EU than the headquarters of your kind of like omnivalent liberal political party and the home of the previous uh, head of head of government being raided by the cops for uh, like a campaign finance beef. Nothing. Oh, yeah, like, we're basically Holland now. The only thing that could make this more European is if Scotland had an explicitly Christian Democratic Party, mm-hmm. all of whose MPs uh, were being investigated for like stuff they did uh, trussed up in leather uh, uh, upstairs over a, over a bar. Oh yeah, like that's the only way that that Scotland could be more European. I mean, than surely literal- austerity pl- would 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 make it more European as well. You have to make the Greeks angry. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, it, it depends where you are in Europe. Are you core Europe or periphery Europe? But right. What we and and so their politics, they're kind of right. I mean, look, core Europe and periphery Europe do tend to have similar kinds of scandals. But I think core European political scandals tend to be more like vice, mm. and uh, political and and periphery European scandals tend to be more classic expropriation and graft. You know. Mm. Although you say, you you say that, uh, I'm not sure that's yeah, true. Yeah, bunga but... bunga, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Police Scotland pulled up a, a fucking forensics tent outside of Nicholas Durgin's house and have been turning over the back yeah, garden with trowels. Uh, now, I mean, I, I should say this is, you know, all covered by the Contempt of Course Act, which kind of limits the implications I'm allowed to make here. But I do think it's it's interesting that they are digging up Nicola Sturgeon, well, more specifically her husband, Peter Murrell, who is, like, head of the SNP, and also it's, you know, controlled a lot of its purse strings for a long time. Uh, they're, they're digging up their back garden. They've been seen coming out of SNP headquarters with um, those little cameras with the, like, um, uh, you know, that you feed down pipes and stuff. So Laparoscopic this, cameras. Yeah, yeah. So so to me, this this sort of activates what I like to keep in my brain as the buried cash lobe. And I don't have any evidence that that's the case. I can't speculate as to who might have possibly buried cash for what reason or why or when or that, you know, we depend entirely on the police to tell us these things, but I'm enjoying this very much. Here's the thing. Cash is natural. It comes from the earth. Okay. <laughs> it's just a plant and yes, yeah. everyone should have Listen, it. It's just is a plant it, is it a crime to go into business as an enterprising small holdall full of cash farmer? I don't think it is. Um, <laughs> so there's a, a few other fun things though, that we have hmm. to discuss today. Um, one of which is just okay. You're right. You know how usually when you knock over the first domino in a sequence of dominoes, then the dominoes will just stop falling over at some point, and some of the dominoes will be left standing. Hmm. Um, what has happened, of course, here, where if you recall, the initial domino to fall over was uh, Three Arrows Capital, um, as it collapsed, uh, that caused sort of these knock-on effects that that where other bits of the cryptocurrency world, in as much as it was just like a kind of working model of an actual financial system built by trial and error through first principles to get people to trick people into putting val- worthless real money into it to get valuable fake computer money 
right? Mm. And if we recall, when we talked about this with Molly White before as well, the real crisis of cryptocurrency is that most of the real money is now gone and has been used by the people who were the best hucksters of the fake internet money to buy themselves sure. various goo-gahs and it's, bubbles. It's, it's and being, and, you know, yeah. concealed in pipes, buried in lawns, uh, you <laughs> yes, know, precisely. All, all of the things <laughs> that responsible people like to do with their money. Yeah. Uh, so... There were a few dominoes, a few a few dominoes left standing uh, last week, and uh, after the collapse of the uh, sort of, I guess you could say, Western strategic polycule FTX. <laughs> yeah, I'm only in a tactical polycule, and it's you know it's yeah. a lot less pressure than a strategic polycule. <laughs> but you got to go to, to you got to go to war college to get into the strategic polycule. Yeah, I don't want to promote that high. You know, I want to I want to stay close to the troops, still get a sort of like t- operational yeah, tempo the- of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the West Point Polyamory Institute. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened is uh, Binance looks like it's going to be the next to at least wobble, if not fall, as Cheng Peng Zhao, the uh, sort of mercurial head of the organization, uh, has now got an Interpol red notice out for his arrest. 2023, now, was- the year of arresting your haters. I, I cannot stress enough. Uh, 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 Trump. Peter Morrow, uh, d- this guy. It's it's the year of like <laughs> people. Want. Pe- yeah, people who don't normally get arrested getting arrested. And although we may not be able to draw any like you know criminal justice conclusions from any of this thus far, it's it's the year of the cop, and I'm here for it. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, it's it's a lot of fun to see a lot of these uh, sort of rich and powerful assholes get uh, perp walked. Essentially, yeah, more of that, more of that. Like people, sort of like whenever this came up about Trump, where people were like, "Oh, next you'll want like political prosecutions of Democrats." I'm like, "Yes, fine, go ahead. You are already going to do that, so whatever." But like, yeah. you're, you're threatening me with like leading Bill Clinton out of a building in handcuffs. Oh no, don't please stop. Yeah. So Riley, you've omitted the most salient fact about CZ. Which is that he's a Canadian. What? Uh, that's true, yeah. Yeah. We uh, to quote Wednesday Adams, we're like serial killers. We're everywhere and we look just like everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're 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 at the height of finance. We're everywhere in Hollywood. Uh <laughs> Canadians are all yeah, over yeah, the place. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so uh basically, um what happened with 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 Zhao is that the the CFTC has a- alleged in a civil complaint that much of Binance's reporting trading volume and uh, volume of profitability have come from the extensive solicitation of and access to U.S. customers because they were not allowed to operate in the U.S. This was like the rest of world cryptocurrency exchange. Um, yeah, the even if you remember, like, strategic polycule. Yeah, and even if you remember, right, like um, uh, uh, FTX, right, they had to set up a separate subsidiary to operate in the U.S., but they were much, it was, it was sort of easier for them. Anyway, so <laughs> what has happened, basically, is that Binance created a whole bunch of corporate entities that allow them to operate in the Binance platform, but ultimately, like to just keep bringing American customers in because yeah, they offer they 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 started up Panance, and you're like, what's the difference between Binance and Panance? And they're like, ah, oh, it's, it's kind of complicated. Yeah. Let's not get into that. Functionally, functionally the same. Don't worry about it. <laughs> And, you know, the, this is also, again, like the identities of people trading on the platform, a lot of sanctioned entities. And, you know, regardless of what you think of the, like, the sanctions that Binance is helping people get around, right? We're seeing crypto once again as delivering something other than the utopian use case that is often touted as. Now, the thing about court filings when they're made about uh, tech people mm. is that they're often extremely funny. That's and true. And so I, 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 have, I have snipped some of the uh, choicest morsels. 
from the filing. Because in the legal uh, system, now... we have this beautiful thing called discovery, where you have to turn over all of the, the shit that you've said and done. And it's, it's uh, people email things to each other, and people say things to each other. And... Oh god, so much. They do it so much on their official emails. They say, hey, yeah. shall we commit a crime today? Yeah, they, they, <laughs> I mean, it's having the group chat called wire fraud, but mm. uh, times a million and everywhere you look. It's, it's great. It's like, it's like having a, a Slack channel called premeditated murder, which we're planning here because we know it's a crime and we're doing it anyway. Yeah, uh, Judge, look here. That Discord channel is unrelated. Um, that's actually like the Cat <laughs> Pictures channel in our Discord. It's just called that because of a joke, Your Honor. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, and, and yes, look, I happened to write the clients we want to tip off that they're being investigated on the side of my cat. That's just what he <laughs> likes to wear. <laughs> it was a Halloween costume. He was going in costume <laughs> yeah. as an incriminating email. So this is from the from the from the filing. Uh, another important benefit that Binance provided to its VIP customers is prompt notification of any law enforcement inquiry concerning to their account, according to an official company policy titled "For Management of, Requ- of Requests for Information and Funds Transfer." Uh, Binance instructed its team to notify a customer. To, through all available means to inform them that their account is being frozen or unfrozen, do not directly tell the user to run. Just tell them that their <laughs> account is being frozen well, and do, it was investigated do, do by you not di- Is that verbatim? Do not directly tell the user to run. Yes, that's oh, This was their the chief filing. compliance officer. He's got all kinds of crazy stuff like, um, tell this person we caught breaking the law that this account is burned and if they want back on the platform, they'll have to create another account. Yeah, that's... <laughs> That this is the and again the, the the fact that they just keep doing this in their official Slack channel is really fun to me. <laughs> it's great. I, the the Crypto Critics Corner guys did a really good job on this this week. It's just it's the hits keep on coming. I'm feeling very gratified because uh, my next novel is this book Red Team Blues, which is like an anti finance finance thriller about crypto heists. And um, I was kind of worried that maybe crypto wouldn't be a thing by the time the book came out at the end of this month. And now I'm like, oh, my God, crypto is going to be even dumber by then. This is this is perfect. Wait, it's because as it you know, that's like writing, writing a tulip book in like 1638. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the thing I think the, the reason crypto is getting dumber is just that so many of its edifices are just sloughing off. Mm. And you're and you're seeing the very strange rickety machinery inside as they just yeah, it's they four keep guys petrying. sending emails back and forth <laughs> going like, okay, here's how we do crimes. Step one. It's it's just the remaining guys who are all like on the same cycle and someone's cycling forwards and someone's cycling backwards. <laughs> yeah. And, right. and generating free energy. Yeah. And they're giving each other high fives and little kisses uh, because everything's going great. They're on one of those so, like bars that you have to pedal around in like tourist traps. Um, and I I really love I really love the idea of disclosing all your crimes on email because it's absolutely something I would do if I was in a position like that only because I feel like it would be such an exciting thing that I wouldn't be able to shut up about it. Mm. I'd be a really bad criminal every time I hear read the stuff. I'm just like, yeah, I, I I do the same. You you'd be so excited about your like pro money laundering anti money laundering policy. The thing is, if if we were financial criminals, right, and we were forced to disclose the <laughs> contents of our group chat. 
your contributions to that group chat would be like, just went to the parking garage to get this holdall full of cash. <laughs> and then like five more texts about the quality and condition of the holdall and being like, this is a yeah. really nice hold. Should I get one of these? Like, do I get to keep yeah. this? Do I have to bring it back to the guy? Well, 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 because it's also me, I would also talk about how I kind of got injured somehow in a very silly way but it's fine because like they let me play with the drill or something i threw out my back carrying sacks of cash into my car but i didn't want to say anything in case that was like you know gonna cause a problem yeah, it was a bit, I, I didn't want to make i didn't want to come off as being rude so. I, wasn't, I wasn't i wasn't sure if you wanted the hold all back so i just took all the bundles of cash out of it individually and put them on like the passenger seats of my car and handed him the, the hold all back so, if you listening want to know what it's like to be in a group chat with Hussein, this is remarkably similar to something that did actually happen a couple days ago. This is this is basically we, we would be like absolutely yeah. like clown shoe shit. They would set up the secret rendezvous and like all of us, like all five of us, would come to the thing. They'd be like, no, 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 you we just needed like one of you, and we're like, no, well, in case you had any questions or like comments or concerns. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is why the obvious fraud office would be created is to deal with whatever scam we would pull. Okay, all right, all right. Back, back to back to Biden. Back to the guys um, who are like five yeah. percent better at this than we are. <laughs> so, what I think is the funny, one of the other funny things as well is like they were explicitly talking about no, we have to make it more like gambling. Uh, they say, we've done some research on this. Right now, most of the gamification trading are based on some complex derivative financial instruments. The reason why we did the futures battle is we wanted to lower the barrier of complex financial products and increase the conversion and retention net rate. Uh, usually, but there need to be, we need to be very careful. One, number one, usually this kind of product looks like gambling, which may bring us in some compliance and reputation <laughs> risk. So we need to make sure the product does not look like a gambling game. Gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's putting the sign that says bank over the sign that says roulette wheel. Well, it's it's you know what it is. It's that depending on who's looking at you, you have a little lever and you can rotate that That's sign right. between bank and roulette wheel. Um, Binance also is aware that its compliance controls have been ineffective. Uh, at Binance uh, CCO at the time recognized in an October 2020 chat with another Binance compliance personnel that Binance's compliance environment had amounted to quote email sending and no action. For media pickup, I, could, I guess you could say it's faux show. Uh, all of these guys are so oh. fucking cringe. Like, at least... Okay, right. When Enron fell into this trap, right, it was... Uh, at least they were, you know, doing things like, uh, we just, you know, shafted a bunch of our consumers, uh, golf later, right? Like, it was regular trading places, evil finance guy shit. These guys are uh, just... Uh, Reddit oh, oh, oh. has spread, okay. you know? Okay, all right. This no, this the next one I'm going to read is worse than Reddit. It's like Imgur. Mm. Uh, so Binance also intentionally tried to hide the scope of its compliance programs ineffectiveness from its business partners. For example, in around October 2020, Binance underwent a compliance audit uh, to satisfy a request from a partner, but they purposely engaged a compliance auditor that would just do a half-assed individual sub-audit on geofencing and buy us more time. Um, Again, sure. you shouldn't write that down. <laughs> Does anyone know As any really bad auditors who won't catch our <laughs> evil stuff? That's like, <laughs> what most do we do the auditors? That's what they're for! Yeah. 
<laughs> so as part of the audit, the Binance employee who held the title of money laundering reporting officer lamented that she, quote, needed to write a fake annual MLRO report to Binance's board of directors, WTF. <laughs> Ugh, the re- the reason it was fake, fake is that Binance didn't have a board of directors. Uh-huh. Well, because they they claimed they claimed that they they were subject to no jurisdiction because they were kind of everywhere. They they were stochastic. Uh-huh. Oh my god. It's like it... Yeah, so um so the the next is the, here's where it gets very imger. Uh, where it says, uh, Lim, who's aware that Binance don't have a board of directors, as we say, nevertheless reassured her, yeah, it's fine, I can just get management to sign off the fake report. Which is, again, a hilarious thing to say. Around the same time, as a reference half ass compliance audit in November 2020, the officer exclaimed to Lim in a chat the following all-cap sentence, ICANN has no confidence in our geofencing. <sighs> I like that you can kind of carbon date when this compliance officer got on the internet. Yeah, for sure. good. And was still posting like this in 2020 at work. Yeah. Like, if it oh, works, yeah. don't fix it. They're just this ossified, at, like, permanently at the I can has cheeseburger level of the internet. So what that means, though, is that in 2033, so there's going to be a huge trove of fraud, like, like documents discovered and whatever is the, you know, granddaughter of cryptocurrency or whatever, mm-hmm. where, like, one of the compliance officers is going to make a Tiger King reference. It's going to be like, yeah, be yeah, you know, Drake shaking his head, real money laundering reporting uh, obligations, yeah. Drake uh, nodding his head and pointing, fake MLRO. And they, they gave <laughs> these guys, like, how many... How many billion dollars of like oh. money, you know, shooting around between the IRGC and Hamas and fucking? <laughs> Ima- oh, yeah. Imagine that. Imagine you're fucking Qasem Soleimani, right? And your, you like your bank is the I can I can has cheeseburger guys. Yeah, that's so embarrassing. This is, I mean, to play the hits. There's a great old Saturday Night Live sketch from the dot com bubble that is an ad for a bank. Where they're like, you know, we we here at Very Serious Bank, we we didn't want to jump on every fad, so we stayed off the internet until we were sure that it was really here to stay. And we're we're we've heard you loud and clear, and we're finally on the internet. But of course, waiting has its consequences, which is why you will now find us at www.clownpenis.fart. <laughs> that's right, uh, th- and that's 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 who we're, that's who that's like all these people are like. Are now banking with, uh, as you say, like the the red, the somehow more embarrassing Reddit this polycule. Is, this is the thing about sanctions, right? It's the like. On the one hand, they cause like untold human misery. On the other hand, they force like serious people to bank with clown penis dot fart. So it's impossible to say <laughs> if they're bad or not. So here's uh, here's another one. This is actually regarding uh, a transaction with a a transaction with a sanctioned entity. Uh, initially, Binance officers, employees, and agents have acknowledged that the Bi- Binance platform facilitated potentially illegal activities. With Duh, regard to yeah. certain Binance customers, including those from Russia, Lim acknowledged in a February 2020 chat, quote, like, come on, they're on our platform for crime. <laughs> don't, don't use, yeah, walk, to, walk down the hall to someone's office and say that, or, or like, go to a restaurant, go to, like, Jesus Christ, if you had just gone, hey, can we talk about this on, like, my non-work Skype thing? That's one more barrier for, like, someone to get through. Like, you don't have to hand over all of that shit automatically. 
Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, I actually think that it's it's sensible that they're that they're using only work technology to talk about work stuff. Otherwise, your work's just going to creep into your personal That's life and true. your barriers That's true. between this the job and home. This is an excellent way of maintaining work life balance. I I, I want to be a fly on the wall the moment when their lawyers told them that they had to disclose this. Like oh, when, the moment when they sort funny. of like went back in their own heads and tried to remember all of the things they had typed on a company email. You just control F for the word crime, and you're yes. like, oh boy, oh no. <laughs> all the little yellow tabs show up. You actually didn't set your status to invisible. It is like it's still going. We can all we can all see you. Like <laughs> very like, sort of your is it's like a multi-year hot mic situation. Yes, yeah, basically. Uh, all right, so I'll, I want to move on though because I want to do a startup, uh, which is going to take a little bit of a similar form to what we just talked about. Uh, and then get to our, our core topic. There's, there's a link in the notes for the startup, and I, I already have a sense of where this is going. Why is this a justice.gov link? <laughs> Look, the secret theme of today's episode is reading court filings. <laughs> the secret theme of this episode is it's the year of the cop. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, cr- it's just crime all the way down. All right, so the startup, and now I suspect this is, it's been in the news a little bit. Uh, I suspect some of you may have heard of it. It's called Frank, and yes, the link underneath the name in the notes is a link to a justice.gov website. What do you think it is, Corey, if you don't know already? Ugh, I'm drawing a blank. Set it up for me again? I'm, 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 I'm trying. It's called okay, Frank, it's and called- he does crimes. <laughs> yeah, it's called Frank, and the main thing we're reading from about it is a justice.gov justice- website. Frank. Spell it? F-R-E-C-K? F-R-A-N-K. F-R-A-N-K. For the first oh, time Frank. in the history of the Southern District of New York, the U.S. attorney there has prosecuted a guy named Frank for financial Frank. crimes. Yeah. Uh, oy, uh, so what's his financial crime? His financial crime uh-huh. is... Alleged. Alleged that he created a shitcoin that was actually... Um, the, the underlying asset that it derived from were beanie babies on ebay but not any e- beanie babies like the two that have retained their value like two and, retain their uh, value yeah i think there are like two that are not worth like zero there are two that are worth like seven dollars imagine being the beanie baby investor who's still got a valuable beanie baby what, what a blessed life <laughs> I, I can i, I can... mean a beanie baby that you could redeem for the hamburger that you used to get it for free as a premium with but but still not zero right i i can give you a hint here because i remember what this one is if you if you think about you know how TurboTax right has this sort of monopoly on uh, tax filings right yeah. yeah yeah what 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 are some other examples of you having to like do paperwork with the feds that you could conceivably squat a startup on top of are they are they um is this part of uh like SEC filings where they ran the forms for the SEC and then they front ran FCC disclosures by shorting companies making bad disclosures. Good idea. Copyright. Copyright can't make <laughs> it. Pending. That's our idea now. <laughs> you you, you said it on the show. That means it's ours. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be patenting that. Uh, Hussein, what do you think? Frank and Alice is right. It is It is a startup squatting on top of some kind of a federal government financial process that people interact with. Think younger, maybe, than most uh, SEC filings. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Because like, the immediate thing I was thinking about was actually nothing to do with like bank frauds. It was to do with like that British, um, you know, that whole like talk to Frank campaign. Alice? Oh yeah, the drugs that. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 
and I and I was like, oh, it has does it is something to do with that? But obviously, it's not. Um, <laughs> I mean that they would generate probably a legal filing if yeah, they went guy, public with a drugs. Company. The guy called Frank that you would talk to about having drugs, he'd be like, yeah. "Okay, well, look, <laughs> I have this scheme that you can be part. Of. <laughs> let me send, let me send you an email. Oh, get, yeah, like criminally, like suborning Frank <laughs> from Frank. <laughs> uh, fuck, I don't know, man. My my other my other guess is literally just like, what if Klarna, but for guys? But I don't even like, I yeah, I, I don't Klarna, think so. men only. Yeah, that's right. Kla- Kla- Klarna for the fellas. Yeah, Klarna, um, but you can't buy freaking Bud Light with it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I'll, I'll I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. Uh, it is basically a turbo tax for student loan applications on the basis that in the United States, the vast majority of people qualify for like federal or state aid that they don't claim because they don't know they can get it. It's basically a kind of automated Matthew Lesko for students. And so here's an article from TechCrunch in 2018. Uh, Investors are pouring money into Frank, a TurboTax for student loan applications. Remember, this ends with a justice.gov file. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can kind of... It, it, it has the same, like, uh, narrative structure as pain and gain, right? Where at the beginning, you're like, oh, really why, why are the cops after this guy? And then it's like, oh, we, we had a perfect foolproof scheme, and then it ends with the cops. Yeah, I, I love that movie. Um, you know, so, it, it's imp- the company's technology automates much of the application process, the free application for federal student aid, or FAFSA form, that is the gateway to getting the federal government to help pay for your college education. So, crucially to note as well, this is barely a technology company. It isn't really. Uh, it's just a large, although that's up for debate, register of students who are applying for various kinds of aid. And so, basically, you sign up for it, and then it gets all your data, and then it can, you know, do stuff with your data. Hmm. A, a nerd wallet study from 2016 indicated that students left $2.7 billion in free federal Pell Grants on the table by not completing FAFSA information, which I suppose would have underlined, undermined some of Kamala Harris's plans. According to the CEO, Charlie Javis, her company has grown by around a factor of three this year. Let me just click on this link here, click on the link, uh, People of the United States of America versus Charlie Javis Defendant, I see. Oops, oopsie. Yeah. Oopsie uh, Conspiracies to commit wire and bank fraud, wow. Yeah, so, Frank is teaming up with colleges to offer discounted classes, matching its users with unfilled fl- slots and classes that are ready to take place. We'll check back in with Frank in a quarter or two to see how the new product is helping, or if, or not, its growth trajectory. If it Distant does, Frank Distant sirens could raise... outside. <laughs> <laughs> if so, Frank could raise Series B in the next few quarters. So if Frank keeps growing, there should be money available to it. So yeah, it came up in like the everything Zerk bubble. I, I, I feel very much like Trump about this. I think that, if, you know, Trump is allowed to... There is no criminal sanction that can stop him from running for president or being elected president. I think Charlie Javis should do the same thing, the Eugene v Debs thing but in startup and try and raise series b from jail <laughs> oh but i made a small error where i just said we'd say we'll check back in with frank in a quarter or two that's from 2020 when many of the events alleged in the court filings <laughs> took place <laughs> they were like this is a city on the grow <laughs> meanwhile at frank <laughs> hq it was just like fuck 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 <laughs> this is a really nice indictment they've got graphs and everything Oh, I, I really enjoyed reading it. It's I, I, I almost want to put a link in the episode notes because it is fun to read. I do recommend it. Uh, but maybe that's just because I have like the weird brain process that makes it that makes that fun for me. No, but it's, I been, it's been a while it. since I've read a statement of facts, and uh, you know this is this is a good one. They they they've got their that they've got their own brochures on there, which is very fun. Oh, and the chat logs, they have their own Slack logs. No, not this again. For fuck's <laughs> sake! Yeah. 
I faked you all out. It's the startup and the news segment are the same segment. Fuck. Yeah, so what happened is JP Morgan bought this company, again, this form-filling-out automation firm for $175 million at the height of the everything bubble. Charlie Javis was, of course, very handsomely paid, and the main thing they wanted to buy was just a way to acquire, like a route to acquire all of those customers that um, Frank had already. And then that that, that was going to be a new way that they could just like onboard new customers into the bank. Mm -hmm. They could also learn about them, be able to analyze their behavior and so on. Like the three things you do with big data sets. And they had a lot of uh, students. They had four and a half million students uh, in their in their data banks or so everyone thought Uh uh, (laughs) it was it was um, actually closer to some tens of thousands, I believe. Ah, now. J.P. Morgan claims they found out about the alleged fraud when, and this is some just excellent chaotic fraud committing, or alleged fraud committing, because it's just so poorly planned. It's like the opposite of the bank heist and inside job. For its part, this is from TechCrunch as well, J.P. Morgan claims it found out about the alleged fraud when it sent out marketing test emails to a list of Frank's customers provided by Frank, and more than 70% of the emails bounced back. (laughs) I, I I do hate it when that happens. And so, yeah, that, that's, so the, that's not my favorite part of this reading ahead. My yeah. favorite part of this is how they tried to get out of this oh, and how they tried so, to oh. artificially inflate the number of students that they had to JP Morgan, because that so, leads us to a, a paragraph which, which is a lot of which fun. involves the phrase um, Javis claimed to engineer one that it was legal and stated, we don't want to end up in orange jumpsuits. <laughs> so, so I'll, 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 t- I'll take us through it. I'll take us through it. So this is from the filings. Based on my review of records obtained from JP Morgan and my interview of Frank's director of engineering, who's engineer one, I've learned that on or about August 1st, 2021, the same day that the, um, the, the executive sent Charlie Javis, the defendant, an email seeking additional information about Frank's user data, Javis turned to engineer number one, who I must, uh, uh, I must emphasize now, Frank has been bought. Engineer number one is an employee of JP Morgan now. Right, uh, to take the much smaller set of actual Frank data and then use <laughs> create a larger synthetic data set of fake people. <laughs> Going to GPC, like being like uh, generate four point two million uh, students. So, do they? I mean, when when we say we generated them, did they literally just like um, feed them all into like a Mad Libs program and said, take some surnames, some first names, some loan amounts, some addresses. You know, this guy lives at 1313 Mockingbird Lane and that that guy lives at 11 every street. Make this make the new address 1313 every street. Like, is that the level of synthetic personhood that we're talking about? Or did they like create chatbots? No, the level of synthetic personhood of just basically uh, wow a lot of people living on one two three main street seem to be using the frank platform (laughs) well so this is what cz did he told his american customers they advised american customers to list their country as unknown instead of u.s so Mm. that when they ran reports to show how many u.s users they could show they had no u.s reports uh no no u.s users just millions and millions of, of users in an unknown country yeah, millions and millions of users who aren't quite sure where they are and are smelling toast. Well, well they're they're in Shakespeare's undiscovered country. You know, they're they're in they're in heaven. So, uh, so 
basically, uh, after raising concerns about the legality of the request, wouldn't you know it, newly minted JP Morgan employee known as Engineer One in this transcript declined. <laughs> I feel pretty bad for Engineer One here, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> He he keeps being like I assume here they they keep being like I really do not want to do anything illegal and then Javis sort of like texts him back on Slack it's fine just just do it come on be a friend <laughs> yeah uh, so Javis then calls Engineer One saying she she really needed help to generate this synthetic data set specifically she wanted him to use the smaller Frank data set and generate a larger set with the same properties of the original set. And this new engineer, so this different engineer, the new engineer was all was not comfortable with the quest request, but responded that he would take a look at it, and then later uh, said, uh, as you quoted, uh, Alice, I don't want to do anything illegal. Uh, with Javis and a co-conspirator then claiming, don't worry, this is legal. We do not want to end up in orange jumpsuits. The engineer <laughs> then proceeded to decline the request. <laughs> shirt that uh, the shirt that said the shirt I'm wearing that says I'm not committing any crimes. I promise is raising a lot of questions <laughs> already answered by my shirt. Yeah. Uh, so the after this engine, the second engineer declined the request, and while the first engineer was still on the video call, <laughs> Javis and the co-conspirator spoke to each other about how else they could obtain data, such as phone numbers from an external source. So they also hot mic'd. They were like, okay, we got to commit this crime somehow. <laughs> with, the, with the guys who are like, sort of like audibly rassing them out at this point because they're so uncomfortable with this. <laughs> like, uh, I love. You know what the funny thing is? Javis was on the same list of 30 under 30 as Sam Bankman Freed. <laughs> <laughs> and what a beautiful cohort of scams we've had. And Caroline Ellison, actually. They yeah. were all on the same <laughs> list. <laughs> so, so cool. you know, the amazing thing about the synthetic person wheeze is that this part's not hard, right? Like anyone, you know, like when they when they were um attacking the FCC net neutrality docket uh and sending in fake comments, they literally just just downloaded breach data from some, you know, carding website on on the dark web that just has the names and addresses of like a million real people. And they just they just sent, you know, comments on their behalf to the FCC saying we hate net neutrality. Uh you could have just also had them be student borrowers. It's not <laughs> that hard. Well, these so, people don't have that kind of criminal instinct. Yeah, you see, they, I, that's why they need to hire me as their crime consultant. Yeah, which you've now said, of course, on this very not public, not recorded medium. <laughs> yeah. If, yeah. if, we, if kind... we do that and I get done for contempt of court for the SMP thing, this could have a two hundred percent arrest rate. Like <laughs> <laughs> that's it's way more than usual. Yeah. Uh, but no, but it's, Riley, um... you're not a cop, right? You'd have to tell me if you are. That's the law. <laughs> that's right. I, that's podcasting law. Uh, no, but. Uh, Here is what I think is the funniest part of this entire saga, uh, which is uh, Charlie Javis then decided that what she needed to do was contract an external data scientist and basically sh say she wanted to create some test data from a small subset of her data set, right? So she goes, oh yeah, these 10,000 records, can you please extrapolate this to what it would look like if we had four and a half million or so? I want to do that so I can then like test if there are pattern, if any random patterns, uh, non-random patterns, rather. Yeah, in looking my for 4.2 million yeah. of my closest trends. Precisely. Uh, so, this, the data scientist said, sure, what you've described sounds perfectly legal. Of course I'm going to do that for you, because they didn't know the specifics of why. Um, and then, 
invo- gave uh, Javis uh, a detailed and itemized invoice, including things like um, generating features, college major generation, generation of all features except for financials, zip code lookups, first names, last names, emails, phone numbers, looking into white pages, unique IDs, and so on and so on. Uh, and then Javis responded to that invoice by just saying, can you please send the invoice invoice back with just one line item for data analysis? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a really detailed invoice. It's got like you know hours in, hours out. It's uh, mm-hmm. it, like it's impressive. Makes my invoices look like shit. These are but these did are they remember re- their VAT number? Yeah. <laughs> these it's are terrible a- people to try and enlist in a crime. You know, yeah, they're they're all too methodical. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so okay, that's um. That that's Frank, but I've been wanting to talk there is, about that there company is one for a while. More detail about this, which is yeah, when hit me, hit when me. Javis responds to him going, "Hey, can you just send this back with like as like a one line invoice for thirteen thousand dollars, mind you?" Um, the, they reply, "Wow, thank you. Here is the new invoice," and charge them eighteen thousand dollars for a one line <laughs> item. Yeah, so awesome. <laughs> I love everybody involved here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is I, I. What I like about this, I think, is just like you've sold your company to J.P. Morgan. It has basically no users. They've explicitly said we are buying the users. We don't care about your technology because it doesn't really exist. Um, do you think they're not going to? Do you not have a plan ahead of time for what to do when they say, "Hey, this thing we just bought, can we look at it?" But like, I love the four thousand seven hundred dollar. Uh, you may be asking me to commit a crime surcharge. On the you know what it's like. You know the scam where where some bloke sells you like a shrink wrap box with you know a Nintendo in it, and it just turns out to have a brick in it. Yeah, a bag full of dirt with the word "puto" written on it. Yeah, sure. Right, but 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 then he sells you an extended warranty and comes to your house to fix it. <laughs> So, so all right. Well, we're moving. We're moving on from from Frank. I, I, it's it's. There's some stories that just really get me, mm-hmm. and that certainly was one of them. So now I want to talk a little bit now about the Internet Archive. Hmm, um, I so, this. Corey, you're a real you're a real intellectual property fan. So, what drew you to the Internet Archive, and what is it? So I need to start with a little benediction here. Um, I am a special advisor to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I've worked with them for more than 20 years. We are of counsel to the Internet Archive. I am not speaking on behalf of EFF. None of the stuff that I'm saying is privileged. Uh, I'm going to stick to things that are public. I also know some things that aren't public. So I'm, I'm, don't, I'm not trying to be evasive, but there are some things that I... I can't say. So Charlie I, Javis I, should have taken a lesson from you yeah. and just said that <laughs> none of this is crimes anyway. <laughs> Sorry, please so, go ahead. I mean, in terms of like how I got involved with the Internet Archive, you know, I was living in San Francisco in the late 90s and I got invited to the launch of a thing called the Wayback Machine. Um, and I met this guy, Brewster Kale, who had done some early search stuff. He, he'd invented Waze, which was the first search tool. Uh and he um, had been secretly crawling the internet for years, basically since the web started. And every time he crawled the internet, he just stored a copy and he didn't delete the old ones. And now he was ready to let all of us see any web page that he had ever captured an image of sort of forever and that he was going to keep doing it. And he had a, a nonprofit, a 501c3. Uh, and that was the start of my connection with Brewster and with the Internet Archive. And I've, I've worked with them 
on many issues and I've spoken at many of their events and um, been involved in many of their causes now for, for uh, it's been more than two decades. Uh, so the Internet Archive that, you know, Google has this high minded mission that's something like uh, organize all the world's information and make it usable or something. That's actually what the Internet Archive is doing only on a nonprofit, public spirited basis where there's no enshittification kind of integrated into the process. They're never going to rug pull us. And, and so the Internet Archive has a bunch of different programs. Um, one of them is a book scanning program where they uh, rely on a precedent in a case called Hati Trust that was set by uh, a, a lawyer, uh, or no, rather a librarian um, called uh, Bobby Glushko when he was at uh, UMass Amherst. He's now at the University of Western Ontario, uh, Riley, a, a fellow Canadian-ish. Yeah, right. uh, We're and, everywhere. And everywhere. We are, and we look just like everyone else. Yeah, and so, and so Bobby was um, scanning the holdings of uh, UMass Amherst, uh, and he was allowing one copy to circulate uh, in scanned form, uh, if the book was not also circulating in print form. So they had one copy and, uh, students at UMass Amherst could access that copy either over the internet or in person. And only one student could access it at a time. They did that by using Adobe's PDF DRM, which I'm not a big fan of, but which it should be noted here. The publishers say is a perfectly adequate way of ensuring that, uh, only one copy of a book is circulating. So relying on that precedent, the Internet Archive created its own library, and we sometimes think of libraries as being creatures of um, of, of uh, either uh, local councils, cities, universities, uh, maybe even elementary schools. But libraries uh, started outside of those institutions, and they remain outside of those institutions. There are lots and lots of libraries, um, including ones run by professional associations for creators that uh, you can use all over the world. Um, I'm a member of the, of the Royal Society. We have a library down on the Strand. Um, there's there's libraries all over the place. And so the archive set up a library. You get a library card from them. They buy books, they scan them, and one person at a time can check those books out. Um, the reason all of this is so salient is that if you are a library and you want to circulate an electronic book, the way that the... Um, publishers approach this is they say, okay, we want to charge you significantly more for this ebook than you would pay for the print book. And the, the reason they argue that they're able to do that is they're not selling you the ebook. In fact, they say they don't sell anyone an ebook. They say that no one in the world has ever bought an ebook from them. They have only licensed the ebook. And that license prohibits resale and lending and all the other activities that would normally come with uh, the acquisition of a book. Um, you may have seen books that have these warnings on the on the inside cover that say this book is sold on the condition condition that it not be loaned or or resold. Those are not enforceable, and in fact, in many places, publishers have been required to remove them because they were deceptive. Um, you bought a book, you own the book. You know, loaning and giving away books is like not only older than copyright; it's older than publishing; it's older than paper; uh, it's arguably older than commerce. I mean. Uh, people were were loaning scrolls made of papyrus before we had any of the institutions we have now, and so you know we 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 have historically made our copyright and and our commercial law such that it acknowledged these traditional contours of book ownership. So the publishers argue that that the act of selling the same words but on uh, as a file instead of as a codex between covers 
um, creates a new legal regime that supersedes all of those other legal regimes. And that libraries therefore have to take whatever license terms are being offered to them, which in the case of eBooks for libraries is that the books cost significantly more, sometimes as much as 10 or 15 times more. And they can only be circulated a certain number of times. So the books expire out of the library's collection after a couple of years or after a couple of dozen circulations. And the publishers argue that this reflects the normal reality of a, of a print book. I am a recovering library worker. I'm actually a visiting professor of library science at the University of North Carolina, but I was a page and a cataloger growing up. And I have repaired many books and put them back out to circulate that have circulated not a couple of dozen times, but hundreds of times. And that is not unusual. So this is just untrue. And the reason that this deal, this take it or leave it deal is possible is the publisher's rely on the presumptive unlawfulness of scanning a book and making an ebook out of it the way the internet archive has uh, and so this has become an issue of enormous consequence to the publishers who see in a world where their fortunes are being increasingly constrained by a single monopoly uh, uh, print and ebook seller amazon that the customer with the deepest pockets that they can squeeze the most from is the public library system uh, and so they they are trying to make up God, for their sorry, that's losses. That's a really fucking dire sentence. Mm. Oh, it God really damn. is. And and so you know we can get into the kind of the weeds on the case. You know one of the things about this case is that uh, Hachette, which is the belligerent that that uh, led the case, it was like, uh, there were four publishers involved, but Hachette was the publisher that led it. Hachette is like Little Brown, Orbit, a bunch of other publishers you've heard of. There are five major trade publishers left in the world through an orgy of acquisitions and mergers. Uh, that uh, almost went down to four, except uh, the U.S. blocked the merger of Penguin Random House and Simon and & Schuster. And if you want, we can even talk about how Amazon drove that consolidation. But Doc, like Brandon stopped them, right? Brandon stopped them. Yeah, well, Lena Khan stopped them. Uh, and thank goodness for <laughs> yeah. Lena. Uh, one, of the, one of the few sort of actually effective Democrats. Oh, yeah. Gotta, well, and Jonathan Cantor and, and yeah. you know, her commissioners, Rebecca Slaughter. I mean... Politics are uh, p personnel or policy, and while I am no uh, Brandon fan, I still um, uh, have to admit that the appointments on the antitrust side have been brilliant. They've been uh, un unprecedented. Nothing we've seen in our lifetime looks like this. It is a remarkable moment. So, so the, the uh, Hachette told their experts, "Do not prepare any evidence. Do not attempt to prepare any evidence to quantify our losses." due to what's this this program called controlled digital lending. And for some people, that's like they, they know that they haven't lost any money. My guess is it's because they don't know how their books perform because Amazon has all that data, right? That like the, the single largest factor in their books performance is one retailer that accounts for 40 to 60% of their print books and something like 95% of their eBooks that gives them almost no data on it. And that retailer is also a publisher that competes with them. It poaches their authors, it um, it it you know offers them uh, or demands unsustainable discounts from them. Uh, it um, is able to cross market in ways that they can't. So they know, you know, Amazon knows which Kindle original books sell with which Hachette books but Hachette doesn't know which Hachette books sell with which Kindle original books. So Amazon can target Hachette readers, but Hachette can't target Amazon readers. So I think that, you know, like just like the, the alcoholic dad who beats up his family because he can't control the people who are, you know, actually making his life miserable. Uh, 
you know, the publishers are in this circumstance that is that is a, a genuinely terrible circumstance. Like we we should not ignore that. But the people they're taking it out on are writers, libraries, and people who work in publishing, as opposed to Amazon, because the you know Amazon is too big to fight. And well, although when, whenever I I sort of I think about uh, feeling bad for a publisher for a moment, I do remember the name of Aaron Swartz, and then I stop feeling bad for any publisher ever. That was, um, I mean, that was scholarly publishers, to yeah, be fair, who are, right? Yeah, who so are, these are yeah, they're all terrible. largely trade publishers. So this is the, 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 they are two separate sectors and they're not really intertwined anymore. They used to be a little Macmillan used to own nature, but they sold it off. Uh, but I think you, you mentioned earlier, right? There's a lot of mention of the publishers here. And I keep, I keep seeing this sort of persistent uh, sort of talking point that you know a lot of this is uh to be fair a lot of i saw this talking point repeated in very funny and enjoyable ways that you know a lot of this is down to you know like at the you know, ya uh literature uh like like, like consumers and, and writers and stuff and it, it, look these people are profoundly annoying online but as with so many things the real villain here is is is, is this is the publisher you're and also you're as you me say, i can't Amazon. be i can't be mad at uh chuck wendig for this exclusively <laughs> it it, it look i mean look if you want to you can but it seems Thank like you. A i'm gonna i'm gonna activity. take that and i'm gonna run with it um <laughs> i just so, i just want to declare an interest that i yeah. am a new york times best-selling ya author who's a friend of chuck's but but there we go <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing is right uh, this, this case is being overseen. This is a little bit of a, a detour, uh, but this case is also being overseen by a judge who's overseen some real fucking bangers in his day. Mm. Um, he oversaw the trial of the one of the legal counsel counselors of one of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. He also oversaw one of my favorite frauds in history, which is the Raffaello Folieri fake Vatican fraud case, where he basically defrauded Bill Clinton out of $50 million on behalf of a kind of fake pope. Which is <laughs> what? So, sorry, sorry. So the, the hottest scams of the 11th century logging on here. What? When yeah, did Raffaello this happen? Folieri. When was there a <laughs> fake pope? I missed this whole well, pope so, debacle. It, so it wasn't so much of a phony pope thing. So I, I want to take a minute to explain this because it's one of yeah, my I, favorite I, things that's okay, ever happened. Okay, I, I can sense the tangent uh. that's going to take up the rest of the episode. So Corey, if you have any <laughs> thoughts about the internet archive, because I'm 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 laser focused in on fake pope right now. <laughs> so Raffaello Folieri um, is he's still alive? An Italian like sort of businessman and man of all industries who I actually uh -huh. did meet once. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he used to, so he was in the tabloids for dating Anne Hathaway. Um, and then it transpired that he was behind this big deal where he claimed to be selling, um, he claimed to be selling unused church land and he used, he got like fucking Bill Clinton in on it. And it, he's, how, he's how just did you meet this guy? Uh, I, I met him at a party once and he was taking bets on who it was when the Pope had resigned and he was running around taking bets on who would be the new Pope. He was very <laughs> charismatic and profoundly like church leading in his scams. It seems like ma making book on uh, uh, like the College of Cardinals. That's. That's incredible. Yeah, he was he was doing the twenty six way parlay. <laughs> like, all right, I think the first the first one to speak is going to be Argentinian. Uh, the, the 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 white smoke is going to go up afternoon. You know that kind of thing. 
Great. Yeah, it's, it's a weird guy. There's a whole article in Vanity Fair about him. I suggest you check out where he's like, yeah, he he basically leased uh, uh, the penthouse in Trump Tower because he like felt like he, and this was in 2008. He felt like just being there made him feel powerful. And then he also leased it, bought his parents an apartment like on the first floor or whatever. And um, after he likes, you know, all of his different like flim flams and scams regarding the Vatican kind of crumbled around him. He um, the article in Vanity Fair talks about how, yeah, he, he went down to his parents apartments on the first floor where he, quote, got a nosebleed from being so stressed. Oh, so, I hate yeah, when that happens. For, for sure. <laughs> no, he's now. Uh, so he's now I, I, I looked this up. He's now. Um, uh, yeah, he went to like jail for this and stuff. And Anne Hathaway did break up with him. Oh, the 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 bag fumbled atrociously. <laughs> he flew too close to the sun. Yeah, this is a guy who flew too close to the sun. No, he is now. Um, I think like says he's in charge of like a natural gas importer in Italy. Uh, so, so sorry, None he's of, the founder okay. and chairman of a company called Strategic Metals. <laughs> None of these guys can ever fail. Like the highs are so much higher, and the lows are so much also higher. Like. <laughs> You, you, you date Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway breaks up with you. The saddest thing I can imagine happening to anyone. You go to jail for a bit, and then you're just fine. You just bounce back. You're like in 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 like metals. Well, strategic metals, which is what you award a, a tactical polycule with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you bounce back, and then you sort of you know run around a social event trying to take bets on who's going to be pope. You have a very fun life. Anyway, anyway. Uh, he also the same judge, judge but like John how, how do sorry sorry yeah, Raphael Foliari <laughs> right like th in the olden days in the good old days if you were trying to like do shit like this to the Catholic Church this was a good way to end up like you know uh, stretching your uh, your necktie underneath Blackfriars Bridge but this guy is just fine like yeah th the world has gotten soft. Right? You remember when the fucking, like, propaganda duo would have, like, pulled out all of this guy's fingernails, but now, you know, it, it, Berlusconi's in hospital, prayers up again, and this guy's just fine. It, it just, it, you know, it's, that world's gone mad. It's too woke and soft Ooh. now. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say, it's gone too woke. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So, the, next is gonna be the woke part. Uh, <laughs> <so it's, laughs> oh god, they're gonna, well, well, people too should yeah, complain about I was the about woke to say, I was about to say, yeah. Um, no, so he's also like a couple of years ago. He, for some reason, a group of investors hired him to like buy fifty percent of like a Southern Italian Series B football club. Like, I don't understand why he, they keep people keep doing is it, that. Is it a big like kink thing? Do they like being scammed? <laughs> well, I, you don't even know if there, I don't even know if there's if there's any more scamming. It might have just been the Vatican. It was all the Vatican scandal. And also, to be clear, he didn't actually scam the Vatican. It was other people saying he was selling church yeah, land. Yeah, he used but the Vatican's still, name to scam other people, okay. Yeah, that still feels like it would be not looked on kindly. No. You know, I think his his greatest mistake was not selling indulgences. <laughs> yeah, you should have done that. Uh, anyway, he also, so this this judge did a bunch of other, um, has done a bunch of other interesting cases, like the DNC suing WikiLinks for disinformatia and, and all this stuff. Mm. Well, so so I got one for you. The judge who presided over the 2600D CSS case that made it illegal to describe how to break DRM is also the judge who put Stephen Donziger in house arrest for three years no and sure. is now the judge hearing Sam Bankman-Fried's case. <laughs> I wonder how, which way that's going to gonna go yeah. <laughs> oddly this from an open letter it's back to we're, we're off 
Raffaello. We will we will talk about uh-huh. him again. Okay. Uh, don't worry, Alice. We this is not the last. Time. Yeah, we we can, we can do a lot do. more about. We better have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Vaticanology. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we can do Vaticanology. A uh, fake Vaticanology. Um, so this is from an open letter that you and some of your colleagues wrote, which says that this isn't also just a one-off thing. This is sort of a sustained all-out war, more or less on libraries by the publishing industry. You write, a unanimously passed Maryland state law ensuring libraries pay reasonable fees for digital editions died after the AAP sued. And after a previous suit failed, several publishers are currently suing the Internet Archive Library in an attempt to prohibit all libraries from lending out scanned copies of books they own. And so this is, A, it's been happening, and B, it's not just the Internet Archive, it is all controlled digital lending. Uh, to, like, to court, all of it. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, that's that's what's at stake here. Actually, you know, Hachette really overegged the pudding, and the judge gave him what they asked for, which is kind of uh, probably uh, good in terms of an appeal, but but pretty disturbing in terms of the outcome. So one of the things that, that Hachette asked for, you know, the, in the U.S., the uh, exceptions to copyright are codified through a doctrine called fair de- fair use, rather, which is part of Were the you overall. About to say pack- fair dinkum. No, I was going to say okay. fair dealing. Okay, but yes, it's it's fair dinkum. It's uh, what whatever you can get in your ute with your rue is fair <laughs> dinkum. Um, the the Canadians are just cold Australians after mm-hmm. all. That's right, uh, and we're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and, we're, and we look just like everybody else. So in the U.S., fair dealing uh, and other limitations and exceptions codify the things that you're allowed to do uh, without permission from a rights holder. And codify is probably a strong word here because the doctrine is is deliberately loosey-goosey. Um, you know, that there are four factors set out in the statute about what, what can be fair use, but they're the starting point, not the end point. So they, the, generally speaking, if you satisfy all four factors, you're presumptively a fair user. But even if you don't, you still might be a fair user. Um, so those four factors are the nature and character of the work that you're using, whether or not you make a transformative use, whether your use is um, uh, displacing the uh, the market for the work, and um, uh, how much of the work you're using. So those four factors are often thought of as all of fair use. They're just part of fair use. Like the most uh, important fair use case of the last century was arguably the Betamax case over legalizing VCRs. And the VCR flunked all of those, right? It was like directly competing with these um, play once tapes that the the studios were offering. It made verbatim copies that were non-transformative of commercial works. Uh, it took 100% of them, like all of the factors it flunked. But the judges were like, there's 6 million VCRs in America. We're not going to ban them. We'd look like idiots. Like this was back when the Supreme Court cared about looking like idiots. It's clearly not necessarily that anymore. But, you know, fair use is like this expandable doctrine. So one of the things about fair use is whether you're a for-profit user and the Internet Archive is a non-profit user. There are 501c3. And, and Hachette argued that having a donate button on the web page on the website made them a for-profit entity wait by and that the, logic doesn't that make like amnesty international a for-profit yeah, no, entity? No, that's exactly right this is why it's kind of a mixed blessing right because uh-huh. even if you don't care about this at all you don't want a precedent that stands that says having a donate button makes you a for-profit entity like mm-hmm. i can imagine that like jerry falwell's ministry would also not like that precedent oh. to stand right I, I mean how delightful is it that in like a kind of misguided uh sort of a, a quest against 
like the concept of libraries being able to lend out digital books, a group of the four remaining publishers accidentally destroy the biggest tax scam in America. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think it I don't think that would happen. I just think that that the um the the nonprofit sector and churches and whatever, they would probably not like it just on general principles because they would be worried that somewhere down the way it could be adverse to them. So that was one thing that that um was really uh, disturbing in the ruling. The other thing that that Hachette asked the judge to rule and that the judge basically agreed with them on, there's some nuance in it, but is is that uh, no use is fair if it competes with a licensed use. So you may remember if you've been on the internet for a while that about 15 years ago, the Associated Press was offering bloggers, bloggers a license to quote AP articles. It was like a self-serve portal and you would select up to like 11 words and then you'd put down a credit card for like $15 and you would get a license from the AP to quote the AP article. Now, like fair dealing is, and fair use are pretty clear here that in almost every case, this would not require a license. Um, that this was just basically them saying, you know, would you would you like to, here's it like an honor payments box for a thing that you don't need to put any money in. Do you, will you put some money in it with a kind of uh, air of menace around it being like, well, and and maybe we'll see you in court if you don't. And um, and and what the court is saying here when they say that if there's a licensed use, it's not a fair use, is that all that a rights holder has to do is offer to license something and then it ceases to be something you can do without their permission, even though the whole point of fair use is to define a constellation of permissionless uses that are either necessary because permission would be too burdensome to get. So like think of... Um, uh, creating a catalog where you would have to get permission from thousands and thousands of entities and that would make the catalog unsustainable or where permission is unlikely to be given. So you're making a critical use. There's another Supreme Court fair use case about a book called The Wind Gone that retells Gone with the Wind from the perspective of enslaved Africans written by a black woman. The Mitchell estate sued and she won because the, you know, the whole point of 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 these exceptions is to create these speech escape valves and these use escape valves from these exclusive rights over words uh, and over over creative expression that would otherwise hamstring a lot of traditional activities. Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear from what you're saying, you know, that there is that in, in, in sort of taking a sledgehammer to this problem, you know, there there are potentially sort of much wider ranging implications. Um, but one of the other interesting things about this, uh, and this is going to be probably one of the last things we talk about before we end the show, is that the uh, Internet Archive and the general movement um, against these kinds of, you might say, excessive DRM is being portrayed by the publishing industry itself as in bed with Amazon. That is to say, the Internet Archive is, said, is purported to be a uh, kind of happy, um, publicly ac acceptable face of things like Amazon that are crushing the publishing industry. I mean, this this must boil the blood, I imagine. Yeah, it's it's I mean, again, like they have identified a, a genuine problem with monopoly in the tech sector, uh, allowing them to squeeze uh, uh, their supply chain, including um, publishers and and uh, studios and labels, and especially the creative workers who who feed those uh, firms. Um, but you know they're they're going after a soft target, and they're saying that because this soft target is tech affiliated in the sense that it is 
an attempt to try and do the the kinds of things that tech firms claim that they want to do, but do so on a nonprofit, transparent, accessible, you know, public spirited way that that is not grounded in extraction and profit and growth, but rather in universal access and equity. They're saying that that you know any if it has tech in the name, even if the reason it has tech in the name is because the full name of it is we hate big tech let's do something better uh <laughs> then then you are perforce tech right and and they are you know stampeding creators unfortunately and fewer than there used to be but they're stampeding creators into this into this proposition and i'll say one more thing that's i think pretty important here uh to understand about about what's going on with the internet archive and digital lending uh, which is that after the Patriot Act was passed, and the librarians were the first people to sound the alarm on how the sneak and peek warrants would allow the FBI and other security services to gag uh, people who had information about you and then demand that information, permanently gag them from ever telling you they've been for it. In fact, there was a librarian at the time, uh, Jessamine, uh, gosh, I just blanked her last name, Jessamine, who, who created a sign for her library that said the FBI has not been here this week. Watch for this sign to go away. And there was a lot of concern among librarians that their records were going to be the subject of dragnet requests from law enforcement on these kind of fishing expeditions for terrorists and other actors that they were interested in investigating. And so what the Internet Archive did at that point was go as far down into its underlying operations as they could and rip out every form of logging. So the Internet Archive kept no logs at all of what you were getting and how you were using it and so on. And they had to infer how their users were using it. If you've ever found the Internet Archive a little clunky to use, part of that is because like the way that they find out where the pain points are from users is by like getting emails or doing focus groups because they don't log any of your transactions. They don't log how you use it. And so when control digital lending popped up and, and uh, other programs that the archive has done that has made rights holders angry, the rights holders said, these are being used as direct substitutes for the sale of books and it is costing us money. And the Internet Archive has been somewhat hamstrung in its ability to rebut that with a factual record because it deliberately prevented itself from creating that factual record so that it could never narc out its users. And so they, at the start of all this Michigas, started to re-instrument the service in very tentative ways that tried to anonymize data and so on. And and the, the big picture here is that almost all of the checkouts from the Internet Archive's library are out-of-print books that are being checked out for 30 minutes or less. So it's basically people consulting PDFs to get a reference. That's that that is an, an not the substitute of use people worry about. You know, the Internet Archive does things like they do have frontless titles because they uh, partner with other libraries around the country. And so, you know, if they have my next book, they might have a scanned copy and that scanned copy might circulate among their library uh, partners as well. That scanned copy will be one additional copy in circulation among, say, 12 libraries serving hundreds of thousands, if not millions of patrons. It, it will make no difference at all to the number of sales, except in the most marginal attenuated way. And so, you know, the, the a lot of the debate about the Internet Archive has turned on factual questions about the extent to which it harms creators. And for complex reasons having to do with Amazon, with uh, with the national security letters defined in the Patriot Act and so on. That factual record is is largely not there, but to the extent that it exists, 
it should be relatively reassuring to creators and creators haven't gotten the message they've they've been they are i think legitimately alarmed about the falling incomes for creative labor and they rely for better or for worse on publishers to be their proxy for understanding the contours of the industry even though they're often adverse to those publishers and they are being sold a bill of goods about what's going on with libraries more broadly and with the internet archive in specific and i i think that it is um just a, an absolute travesty when we people who do creative labor are convinced to take up arms against our class allies in librarianship and the readers that they represent. Uh, I think that it's the mistake that musicians made in the Napster days. And I think we'd be just foolish beyond belief to repeat that mistake. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's right. The Metallica, you are no longer welcome at the Internet Archive. Um, <laughs> Fire I, I think, bad! <laughs> I think that's a, a pretty good, as, excuse me, I think that's as good a place as any to end it. Uh, Corey, I want to thank you so much for coming back and hanging out with us today. It's been delightful. Oh, it's been delightful for me too. Can I plug something? Plug away. So I don't allow any of my things to be sold with digital rights management. Uh, and that means that Audible won't carry any of my books because they have mandatory DRM. And so I have to make my own audiobooks. Uh, and I sell them everywhere that's not Audible, but that's like a bunch of great stores that no one ever uses, which means that not a lot of copies sell. And so I spend tens of thousands of dollars paying a studio and a great reader. I've had like Neil Gaiman and Amber Benson and lots of other great readers. And, and, uh, and then you know, I generally lose money on them. So I started kickstarting them a couple of books ago. Uh, the current Kickstarter is underway for Red Team Blues. If you go to redteamblues.com, you can pre-order the audiobook. That's that's where almost all of my sales for this audiobook will come from. I got it at the studio last week. We recorded it with Will Wheaton. It's incredible. You can download some samples uh, at the Kickstarter. And, and I hope you'll consider backing the audiobook. Mm. So do check that out. Uh, also, TF is going on tour, tour, mm. tour, in the north of England, 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 a place we have never gone, even though we live here. Right. We went to Australia before we went <laughs> outside uh, of London. Unequal distribution of podcasts. <laughs> so we're at an act of contrition. Uh, TF is doing the We're Sorry It Took This Long Tour uh, in several cities <laughs> in the north. We are not actually calling that that. Yeah, we're not actually calling it that. It's just going to be the tour. Uh, so many tour, I think, is what we're calling it amongst ourselves. We, we so might you want to feel like you're on the show. Yeah. yeah, we'll come up with something. Well, you know what? We'll tell you here. We have three dates booked in, I believe, Birmingham, Leeds, and Manchester. That's right. We did have a date booked in Glasgow, uh, but then it oh turns boy. out we were going to be sharing a venue with Joanna Cherry. Yeah, so, we decided... so now, now we're not. Uh, <laughs> so, so I guess instead of saying come to our show in Glasgow, I am instead going to ask a question. Do you know of a good venue in Glasgow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do do, you, the doing, doing the right thing sucks, but um, yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. We, we were not happy doing it. So no. we are now looking for an alternative venue. Um, we will keep yeah. you posted on this. Um, yeah. and, and if it's some guy's house, then you know. Yeah, yeah. Do you just yeah, come to my house? flat, and we, you know, yeah. come to my like uh, my flat in Glasgow, and we can do the live show, sort of like out of my oh. windows to a Ooh, crowd. How about this? How about this? Let's get up on the roof of I was yeah, Beatles say, style. Yeah. Be. yeah, exactly. Just do I, like one episode. You're not going to be in Manchester on May 31st by any chance. That's when my uh, tour is going to bring right, you no, there. A couple of weeks earlier. A couple oh. weeks earlier, I'm afraid. That would have been really fun. That would have been nice. Uh, unfortunately, no. 
Um, so that's all happening. Um, yeah, I can, give you, I can give you the dates if you want. Uh, Birmingham, oh yeah, the dates. The yeah, yeah, the yeah Birmingham May fourteenth, Leeds May fifteenth, Manchester May sixteenth, and then we were going to do Glasgow May twenty first. We will still try and aim for that, but we'll let you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. So. Um, uh, also, don't forget there is a uh, Patreon. You can uh, you can listen to more episodes of, mm. of this show uh, on it for five dollars a month. There's a Twitch uh, stream. Uh, if you go to slop delivery, you will it will take yeah. you to the Twitch stream. Yeah, where uh, Mondays and Thursdays, uh, a combination, some combination of me, Alice, Devin, and sometimes Milo will be talking about YouTube videos. We've been doing it for years and forgot to advertise it until recently. <laughs> uh, we're so good at this. Anyway, that's all the plugs done. Well, I, I'll say that I'm going to tour Red Team Blues, Canada, US, UK, and then I'll end in Berlin. So uh, if you go to redteamblues.com, I'll have those tour dates up in a couple of days. Okay, cool. now that's all the plugs done. Yes. Uh, unless theme anyone song has is any- Here We Go by Ginseng. Uh, listen oh, to thank it you. Listen yeah, to I, it I, I, I have a plug. Um, yeah, I had a not good time at the dentist, but they did let me play with the drill. Yeah, I'm really just like running that high. They, she let me play with the dentist drill. It's like uh-huh. genuinely the most fun I've had yeah. in a really long time. So uh, or, or you can put that together. Yeah. Uh, so basically, my plug is if you if you are at the dentist and they forget to add the numbing injection, and you just didn't say anything. Number one, say something. Yeah. <laughs> Please say something because it really it really hurts. You, you marathon but... manned yourself. <laughs> like just just the fact that you didn't say anything for 20 minutes after they forgot to numb you while drilling your tooth is Is it safe? It's, <laughs> is it's it, remarkable. Is it safe? I'm I'm fine now. It, I wasn't fine. <laughs> I wasn't fine before. But but look. But she let me she did let me like play with the little drills for a bit. Not on me, just in general. Yeah, and it makes to... and it makes a fun little buzzing noise, like a nice little buzzing noise. Uh-huh. And then I had a good time. So <laughs> I I'm yeah, no plug on like what I'm doing with my life, just a little story from yeah. uh from from from, from uh yeah my my daily life yeah so uh do maybe i'll do that when my yeah. plugs like yeah if you've got anything to plug yeah this is the time i got hurt again yeah <laughs> this is the t- this is <laughs> this this gave the the shape to that little joke we told much earlier in the show all right all right it's getting very long so i'm gonna end the show here thanks everybody for thanks, listening guys. and we'll see you on the bonus episode right. in a few days bye, bye everyone bye.